So, uh, really, really pleased. Um, uh, the, all of the four mornings uh, through the week, uh, got, got a good friend of ours who is going to come and bring the word of God. He's going to really serve us, and I think you're going to really, really enjoy it. Um, and so, why don't you? I'm going to give him a little interview first. But why don't you give him a big round of applause for Daniel uh, as he comes to, to share with us? And uh, just before he does, I thought just to get to know him a little bit, I'm just going to give him a few little quick fire questions uh, just to kind of break the ice a little bit and, and keep him on his toes. And so, Daniel, I, I wanted All to right. answer these as, as quickly as possible. Uh, and this will just give you a, a little bit of an introduction. So, yeah, the first question, an important <clears throat> one DC or Marvel? Definitely Marvel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. DC, why so serious? Yeah, there we it's go, like, see, he's, uh, he's already apart in. Apart from some Batmans. Okay. Yeah, there anyway. yeah, we go, Marvel. Uh, after you've dropped the piece of food, what's the longest you've left it on the ground? All my days. I have a feeling, you'll judge me for this, I might have picked up like a sweet the next morning or something like that. Yeah. yeah oh, that's I, not right, mate. No, that really isn't yeah, right. Yeah, so maybe 12 hours. Oh, Simon, he's giving me a thumbs up. Thanks, mate. Yeah, <laughs> others have been there. Uh, let's go 24 hours of being sick or 24 hours of diarrhoea? Oh. Shout out. Shout out what you <laughs> go for. <laughs> I just don't want to say diarrhoea from the main <laughs> yeah. stage, so I'm going to go sick. Sick, yeah, yeah. let's go sick. Yeah, I, I don't mind. That's a good choice. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Oh, I'd love to fly. I think that would be amazing. Be sick, yeah. yeah. Flying would be good. Yeah. Uh, what's your favourite vegetable? Favourite vegetable? Oh, my days. Sweet potato. Is that a vegetable? You're asking the wrong person, yeah. Yeah, if it is... If you say is. so, yeah, yeah you're yeah, smarter yeah. than I am. Yeah, okay. um, Would you rather explore space or the ocean? Space, yeah, I love this front. Space. These are like, yeah, they're answering for us. These are like yeah. down the front. <laughs> you guys just come up here. here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then the last one, important one, tell us your McDonald's order. Yeah, Big Mac, large, no cheese, extra pickles. <laughs> Someone's saying Don't extra pickles. Me. They like that. Extra pickles, Diet Coke with no ice. That's it. He knows... Yeah. Listen, love it. Uh, take you it or want leave the it. extra drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen, I'll leave uh, Daniel to actually share the word of us. Let me just pray for him before he does yeah, so. Yeah, you might you. want to stretch out a hand. Let's just pray for Daniel. Lord, we thank you for uh, just the, uh, what it says, Lord, the, 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 the word of God is powerful and effective, Lord, and it, it truly does have the impact to change our lives. And so we thank you for the privilege it is to be able to sit here and hear from the word of God this morning. We pray for Daniel. Will he be just full of the spirit? Uh, Lord, will you strengthen him? Lord, anoint him as he shares what's on his heart with us uh, today. Will you bless it and will you bless us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. How are you doing, 15 to 18s? You all right? Good. You don't know me, probably. So I'm just going to show you two pictures and introduce my family. So I think a picture of my family is going to come up. Can you see? Can you see them? I can't see anything. So there should be four of us. My wife, Toria, she's from York. She's from any Northerners in the house or out in the field? Yeah, okay. Any Londoners? I'm from London. Any Londoners? All right, you guys. you just like... Any West Londoners? Chelsea? That's it. I'm out of here. <laughs> and there's Micah, who's eight, my little boy. You'll probably see him. He's, can, I, can I ask you to do a favor, actually, as I... We're here for the week, so he's going through this stage at the moment where he thinks that teenagers are like mean and intimidating. So if you see him around, will you do me a favor as a dad and like say, like give him a thumbs up and a hi, Michael? Will you do that for me? 
Like, give him a wave, give him a smile, just be friendly towards him. It will help me out. And then there's Kiki, who's six. She's adorable. And then we have our last member of our family, who is Poppy, on the next slide. Oh, there you go. I just did it for the cute factor. She's like, protects me on the mean streets of West London. Um, Can I ask you to turn in your Bible to 1 Peter and chapter 2? 1 Peter and chapter 2. And let me just say at the outset what I'm praying for, what the team with the 15 to 18s have been praying for, and what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the church, Jesus' church. And in this passage, we're going to get a, a revelation as to what is actually happening in your church. Just cast your mind back to your local church, wherever you come from, a big church, a small church, city, town, village. You might think it's a cool church. You might think, ah, it's not a very cool church. Just think of this church. In this passage in 1 Peter 2 that we're going to read in just a moment, what we have is a revelation of what Jesus actually thinks of his church, of what is actually happening. Because you might think of church and you might say, well, there's a little bit of singing. Uh, Yeah, there's like the band. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes I like the songs. I'm not sure. There's a bit of Bible reading, a preacher. And then you have kind of awkward chat over coffee. And then you go home and you think... Jesus has a very different understanding of what the church is. And in this passage, we have a revelation of what Jesus says about the church. Because I know that I'm probably up against it. When I was your age, I I became a Christian. I started following Jesus about the age of 17. A pastor, David Chawner, he challenged me, you read the gospel of Mark for yourself. Like, don't go on what your friends think. He said, don't even go on what I say. You read the Bible for yourself. And as I read the Bible for myself, and I actually read the life of Jesus, I was captivated by this man. His strength, his wisdom, his kindness. And I knew everything in my being. I knew I wanted to follow this man, Jesus. But when I thought about the church, I was like, I don't know. I didn't feel like the church really understood me. There were a lot of like old people in the church. There was a lot of pastel colors. There was a lot of fleeces. No offense to fleeces. Everyone in church seemed to like quiche. I don't know why Christians love quiche so much and watered down slightly warm orange juice in church halls. Like, what is that about? Sort out the orange squash, church. I was like, I love Jesus. But the church, I just couldn't understand because I was looking with fleshly eyes. I was not looking like Jesus saw the church. And in this passage, we we have this. And my prayer is that over these next few days, your heart and your mind and your energies and your attentions will begin to be centered around what Jesus is doing with his church. Because Ephesians 1 tells us that Jesus has all things under his feet and everything is being organized for the sake of his church people. That we think the church is like on the peripherals. If you listen to social media and the news, the church is like a forgotten thing that's dying out. But in Jesus's mind, it is front and center and it's going to be the final thing on the last day. And so we need to align ourselves with what Jesus is aligning himself with, the purpose and the building up of his church. And my prayer is that there would be many of you who would be raised up as leaders for Jesus's church. Some of you right now, you've never even thought about being involved and serving and leading and building up Jesus's church. This would be a moment, a marking point, where a disproportionate number of you 
would be raised up and have a passion to love and serve Jesus' church like he does. That there would be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers who would be raised up from this 15 to 18s. So in just a moment, I'm going I'm to read this passage and I'm going to invite you to stand. Because when we open up the Bible, what happens is when the words of God are read, we are addressed by God himself. And it is an appropriate thing to stand in the presence of God. So we're going to read this and then pray and then get stuck into this, if that's all right. So can I invite you to stand? Get your Bible out, maybe. And we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 4 to verse 10. Get used to this passage. We're going to be in it every morning. Hear the words of God. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am lying in, laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, confident, empowered by the Holy Spirit, looking to you, asking that you would do a great work amongst us, that by your Spirit, you would raise up men and women from this place to be mighty warriors for your church, lovers of your church, passionate to see your church arise in this generation. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. And all those who agree say, Amen. Do take a seat. This is Peter's context. Peter was writing. He was, he was one of the best friends of Jesus. And he was writing now as a pastor to Christians who were suffering for being Jesus followers. They were being persecuted. They knew what it was to be left out of the social settings of their day. They knew what it was like to have friends and then say yes to Jesus and then lose friends and then slowly not get invited to stuff. They knew what it was to get persecuted. They knew what it was to be mocked. And Peter is writing this letter to these people to to encourage them not to be ashamed because if you've ever been mocked for being a Christian, you will know that one of the things that can happen is that slowly shame begins to set in. Peter knew this. 
He'd lived with Jesus for three years. He knew better than anyone else who Jesus was. And yet at the very moment where Jesus needed him, we're told this young girl came up to him, maybe the same age of some of the 12 to 14s. One of the young girls came up to him when Christ was being crucified and he was there in this, in this court. And he, she asked him, are you associated with this man, Jesus? And, and he knew what it was to try and cover up and distance himself from this. And he's like, I, I, I don't know Jesus. I never knew him. I, I never, and he, he distanced himself. And he knew what it was to have this sense of shame about being associated with Christ and his church. Because if you, if you do get mocked and left out enough, something can happen in your heart. Shame is very different to guilt. Guilt is this feeling that I've done something wrong. Shame is this feeling that there's something wrong with me. Anyone ever had that feeling? Like you get mistreated enough at school, you get left out enough at school in the common room, and you feel like, is there something wrong with me? Surely I thought when I was growing and becoming a Christian at 17, started to follow me, Jesus, I thought, surely I can be a Christian and still be kind of liked and accepted in the inner circle of what was going on. And I struggled. And I felt this shame about being associated with the church. I kept my distance from Christians. When I was at sixth form, one guy joined. He wasn't in part of the school up to this point. He joined in the sixth form, Albert. And Albert, he was an extrovert. Any extroverts in the house? Yeah. Oh, you're supposed to... That doesn't make sense. The introverts go quiet. Anyway. All right, we've got one extrovert in the house. Albert... He was loud and he was a Christian and he did not care what anyone thought of him. So here's me reading about Jesus in the morning, feeling passionate about Jesus. And then I'm sitting in the sick from common room and I'm watching Albert literally gathering like 15, 20 people around him and preaching about Jesus, telling them about Jesus. Our sick form tutor had to ban him from preaching in the playground because he would stand on benches and he would gather a crowd. He did not care. There was no shame in Albert's life. And he talked about Jesus wherever he went. And here was me saying, I love Jesus. And yet I would sit on the sidelines of the common room, literally quiet, watching him. And I was part of me that was like amazed at him. And part of me was like, I better not be linked to this man because I knew what people said about Albert behind his back. And I was like, I don't want that on my life. And he would go around and he'd ask people, are you born again? Like really loudly. And once I was sitting there working in the common room, he came around and sat down next to me. And I was like, oh my goodness. And he asked me, Daniel, are you born again? I was like, Mate, keep it down. Like, do you know where we are? And I was like, I probably wanted to say, like, yes, but I was like, can we go somewhere else and talk about this? Because I, I, there was this shame in my heart. I didn't want to be associated with Jesus and his, and his church. And Albert showed me a better way to live for Christ without shame. And Peter writes this passage to lift the gaze of the Christians who are being persecuted and say, there is a way to live and suffer and not be ashamed. This is what he says in chapter 4, verse 16, the very purpose which is writing this. He says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, if you know what it's like to be left out as a Christian, he says, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And what Peter does in this passage is he shows us a way not to be ashamed of Jesus Christ, to live of those with faces that are radiant and are free and happy to share our faith, to talk about Jesus, come what may, even when suffering comes our way. Because this is a generation that needs to see Christians who are not ashamed. 
if we are those who cower in the corner of our culture, people will not pay attention to Jesus because they will look at us and think, why would we give our life to a God whom you do not want to stand for? We need a generation who will happily talk about Jesus and let the chips fall where they may. But they don't get invited again to the social settings or they find themselves on the margins. There is a way to walk this path with Jesus without shame, with our heads held high. And this is what he tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2. So let's read this verse, first verse in chapter, verse 4. Peter says, as you come to him, this is Jesus, as you put your faith in this Jesus, this Jesus, we're told, is a living stone. Peter was called the rock. And he has this picture in his mind of Jesus as a living stone. And it's more than just any old stone, we're told. This Jesus is a cornerstone because he quotes from Isaiah 28. And he says this, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am lying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. What's a cornerstone? A cornerstone is a large um, uh, stone that is cut perfectly. It is a perfect uh, rock, uh, stone cut out of rock with, with no cracks, with no weaknesses, with no imperfections, perfect integrity, perfect angles. And the cornerstone was used to be placed at the very corner of the building so that the building was built off the edges and the dimensions and the placement of this stone. The building was vitally important as it's based on this stone. It's the first stone to be laid. It's the most important stone to be laid. It's the stone that will last. And Peter says that Jesus is a cornerstone, that this Jesus is a cornerstone for this spiritual house, which is the temple, which we're going to look at tomorrow. Our eyes are not going to be on the church, on the temple today. Our eyes are going to be fixed on this cornerstone, this Jesus, and what he provides us as Christians. And this cornerstone splits opinions. And in this passage, we're going to read two opinions about this cornerstone. The world's opinion of this cornerstone and God's opinion of this cornerstone. And our temptation as Christians is to listen more to what we see on social media and what we hear our friends saying about Jesus and the church more than what God says about Jesus, his cornerstone. And the battle of Christian discipleship is to not listen to what our culture says, but to listen to what God says about this cornerstone. So there's two opinions. The first thing is this, the opinion of the world. And this is what we find. As you come to him, a living stone, the first opinion, rejected by men. The world rejects Jesus. It's crazy. It's like these builders, they're, they're looking for all these stones. They're trying to find this, this, this perfect stone for this building that they're going to erect. Imagine these builders like searching through, going through these stones. Which one has been perfect? They find this cornerstone that is perfect. The angles are perfect, totally integrous. There are no cracks, no weaknesses. A building can be built on this, a sure foundation. It will not fall down. And yet they look at this cornerstone and they say, nah, I don't want this cornerstone. I'm going to find a, a, a worse stone and use that to build my life upon, even at the risk of my life collapsing. And Jesus' friends 
themselves rejected this cornerstone, Jesus. Jesus there walking towards the cross and his friends slowly peeling away from Jesus, saying, I don't want to be associated with this, with this Jesus. Our culture does it all the time. Our culture thinks that this cornerstone in Jesus is slowly fading away. If you listen to our culture, the, the culture thinks that this cornerstone is basically being slowly eroded, shrinking and shrinking and shrinking in importance. The reality is the cornerstone is as sure and steady as it was when Jesus walked on the face of the earth. The horrible reality is that every single one of us has also chosen to reject this cornerstone. Whether you live a nice moral life or whether you have been very naughty, we have all rejected this Jesus. And it's madness because this Jesus, he is not just a cornerstone for the church. He is the capital T, capital C, the cornerstone for everything that exists in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Nothing exists without this cornerstone. The universe is built upon this cornerstone. We're told in the word that Jesus himself upholds the universe by the word of his power. Everything that you see, these clouds only exist and float in the sky because of this cornerstone, Jesus Christ. The trees stand upright. Your lungs take breath. You are only sitting right now because of this cornerstone in Jesus Christ. In him, we're told, we live and move and have our being. And yet the madness of our human race is that we look at this cornerstone and we think, I could probably do life without Jesus. And we go for it. And our life falls apart and we die. Jesus' disciples were ashamed of him. Walking away, peeling away, saying, our culture rejects this one. I, I don't want to be a rejected one. Why, why would you place yourself on the side of a losing team? Why would you do that? And so they walk away. They say, no way. I, I, I'm going to find another path when I don't have to live with this cornerstone. Our world rejects Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. There is another opinion about Jesus. Amen? There is another opinion about Jesus, and this opinion actually matters. Because when I was so terrified in the sixth form common room of all these voices and these noise and my friends at the time... They loomed so large in my mind. And do you know what I think now when I, when I look back? And this is something that you only learn as like life goes on. Some of you are there now. You think, I, I paid so much attention to their opinions. And honestly, within like two or three years, I basically lost touch with all of my friends at sick form. And I look back and think, why did I pay so much attention to their opinion of me? And then life moves on, and then you're at university, and then suddenly their opinion looms large. And you think, okay, I've got to try and fit in. Can I be a Christian and find a nice, clean path where I'm accepted wholeheartedly like everyone else who isn't a Christian is accepted? And you struggle, and then suddenly you move on from university, and you might keep a few friends. But all of that, 
noise in your mind and your heart is gone again. And you keep going through life. Why base your life on the opinions of people who are passing through your life the whole time? There is only one being whom you will stand before and give an account to, and that is God himself. His opinion matters. Amen? And what does God say about this Jesus? Not rejected. He says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Peter's quoting here from Isaiah. Let me just read this passage to you. This is how God the Father feels about Jesus, the cornerstone. He says, Behold, the Father tells us, new day, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. You know, the father looks on Jesus and his heart swells with pride and love and joy, so much so that he sings when he looks on his son. My soul delights in this cornerstone. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He says, He says this, this thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand, he says to Jesus, and keep you. So we have Christ being rejected by men, crucified, the symbol of everything that we try and throw against Jesus to push him out of our life and reject it. And what we have God the Father saying is, what you reject, I will keep. And this Jesus will be a covenant between me and you, my people. Not only that, but God the Father says, this Jesus is precious to me. God the Father says over Jesus when he is baptized, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. God treasures this Jesus. I have two children, as you know, Micah and Kiki. And one of the, like, for me anyway, like the annoying things about having kids, there's only one annoying thing, which is really good, but the one annoying thing about having kids is the amount of mess that starts cluttering up your house. Because you get to this point where you're like, wow, I have my own house. This is amazing. And yet there are these little minions walking around the house, destroying everything and creating mess. And there are toys all over my house. Sometimes I think I'm like a little bit Japanese because I look at Japanese homes and I think that, that is glory. That's what a house should look like. Just nothing there. And yet my house, there's just plastic pink stuff everywhere. And one of the most regular conversations that me and my wife have, it's not a very helpful conversation that we have, but it is a regular conversation that we have, is me picking something up and asking Toria, do we really need this? in our house. Like I've seen this like kicking around the floor for like three weeks. What, can we like just chuck this out and no one will know? And Tori's reaction, like 99% of the time is, do you know how precious that is to Kiki? And if you throw that out, there will be tears in this household and I will be looking at you. You're on your own. So inevitably, when my wife's will and Kiki's will work against my will, who wins? The girls win in our house. So I put the thing down very gingerly and just back away. Okay, fine, 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 fine. The, the rubbish will stay in our house for another 15 years till she goes to university. Then we... Do you know the world says about Jesus, the cornerstone, 
do you think we can finish with this Jesus stuff now? You know, like the Bible, the sexual ethics, this Orthodox Christian faith, the church. Can we do away with this now? Can we push this out of society now? And do you know what God the Father says? He says, no, you can't. Because this Jesus is precious to me. And when the will of God is involved, nothing is stronger. So what we crucified in Jesus Christ, God the Father looks on as chosen and precious. And when Jesus Christ gets crucified and killed and buried, what we know is that on the third day, God the Father comes and picks Jesus up and says, No, you don't, world. This is my son in whom my soul is well pleased. I have kept this as a covenant between Me and you. You cannot kill my cornerstone. You can try and I will make him alive again. You can knock him out of society and I will bring him back to center place, center center stage again. God raises Jesus from the dead. Because Jesus told Peter earlier on in his life, didn't he? He said to Peter, when he finally, Peter got who Jesus was, Jesus, I think I know who you are. You're the the son of God. And Peter says, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. On Christ, the church will be built and all the wrath of social media will not prevail against the church. If you build your life on this cornerstone, you will not be put to shame because generations will come and go. Persecution will come and go. Slander will come and go. Being left out of your friends' inner circles will come and go. And if you build your life on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, you will remain. Jesus told a parable that we so often just consign to Sunday school about building your life on a rock. That rock is Jesus Christ. This is not like twee stuff to be left in Sunday school. This is real life stuff. If you build your life on this Jesus Christ, when the storms of life come and that final day comes and we are standing before Jesus, everyone else will be tripping over the sinking sand of their culture and tripping over this cornerstone. They will stumble over him and they will be ashamed. And those who have said, I am building my life on Jesus Christ will look to the face of God the Father and our faces will be radiant and we will not be put to shame because as everything else gets swept away, we will be standing in glory with God our Father. So as we suffer for a short while, there is glory coming on the other side. He ends his letter in chapter 5 like this. He says, after you have suffered, and there's a likelihood that things are going to get more difficult in our nation to be a Christian. I think we, we all recognize that. So we're going to have to be a a generation who reckon with suffering, who think it through properly, who look at it like Jesus and say, yes, I will still walk towards Jesus, even if it is through suffering. It says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. 
To him be dominion forever and ever. And all God's people say, Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand, if that's all right. There are two places to build your life, Peter tells us. It's on the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, or it's on sinking sand. It'd be a stumbling. We'll fall on our faces. It might not feel like it because the noise of this world is so loud. And I'm asking us to place our feet on the cornerstone. This isn't just a mental ascent thing. Like, yeah, like if you put kind of Christian doctrine in front of me, I'd probably nod my head. I did that for years as a teenager. I'm a Christian and it meant zero to my life. Building your life on the cornerstone is saying, no, I'm going to put my feet on this Christ and find him to be sure. And find him to be strong. And find that as I am weathered by the storm of life, I can look to God the Father with my face radiant. I'm going to ask us to do something. I don't know if it's going to work. But if if you know you you and your life, you you want to build your life on the cornerstone, I want to imagine you to move in just a moment and just move and just step onto an imaginary cornerstone. Like to actually just, I'm going to build my life on this Christ. It's not a superstitious thing. What we do with our bodies is so important and it can have an effect on our heart and our soul. And it's just a choice. You might not, you might not be there yet. I'm not asking everyone has to do this. But just find a spot and say, no, I, I want to like, I want to build my life on Jesus. I want to be part of his church. I don't want to live ashamed. I don't want to distance myself from the church. I don't want to distance myself from Jesus when he comes up in school. May I be one of the ones, like Peter, after the resurrection, who say, Jesus, I'll come and die for you. So if that's you now, will you just, however you can, find a spot, just thinking like a little spot, just find a spot and just say, like, I'm going to move. I'm going to put my feet here. I'm going to put my, fi- my feet on Christ. Go for it. Lift your heart to God. Now look to God the Father. If you've moved your feet and said, I'm going to build my life on this Christ, look to God the Father and see what he thinks of you and his church. Look at his face. He's not scowling. He's not slightly disappointed. As you base your life on Jesus, his delight in Jesus becomes a delight in you. His face is shining with joy and happiness. Fills his lungs with pleasure and song as he sees you. Look to him. May your face be radiant, New Day.